Well, in the tantras, there is a goddess, gods and goddesses for every sense. There's the eye goddess and the mouth goddess and the ear goddess. It comes out of this perspective that our senses are divine. And so it isn't such a surprise that when you walk into a Tibetan temple, there's color exploding from the walls and there's incense billowing from the shrine and there's music playing. The senses are stimulated. Our senses are are the divine doors into wakefulness. Our body is the divine door into wakefulness. In the Tibetan Buddhist understanding of meditation, your practice is to open the senses and to become intimate with, to merge with, to saturate the senses and to allow that to wake you up. Lama Willa Miller is the founder and spiritual director of Natural Dharma Fellowship in Boston, Massachusetts, and its retreat center, Wonderwell Mountain Refuge in Springfield, New Hampshire. She was authorized as a Dharma teacher and lineage holder in the Kagyu and Nyingma lineages of Tibetan Buddhism after 12 years of monastic training and two consecutive three-year retreats. In 2013, she received a doctorate from Harvard University in Religion, and was a visiting lecturer in Buddhist ministry at Harvard Divinity School from 2013 to 2017. Her academic interests include Tantra and the Body, Buddhism and Ecology, and Buddhist contemplative care. Her Dharma teachings investigate the body as a door to awakening, natural meditation, or Mahamudra, and heart cultivation, or Lojong. She is the editor, author, and translator, respectively, of three books, The Arts of Contemplative Care, Pioneering Voices in Buddhist Chaplaincy and Pastoral Work, Everyday Dharma, Seven Weeks to Finding the Buddha in You, and Essence of Ambrosia, a 17th century collection of meditations by Taranata. Her articles and translations have appeared in Lion's Roar, Buddha Dharma, the Journal of International Association of Buddhist Studies, the Tibet Journal, and other periodicals. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off of the cushion. I'm your host, Ian White-Marr. This podcast is sponsored by the Quanam Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quanam School of Zen. Members of the Online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. To find out more, visit quanamzenonline.org. Listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are eligible for a free month of training using the promo code SITBREATHEBOW, all one word. Willa, it's great to have you on. I think you are my first guest in the Tibetan tradition, which is kind of a <laughs> I feel bad admitting that, <laughs> but it's it's I feel like you sort of go where you know people and now I'm starting to meet more Tibetans. But I am excited because I love 
<laughs> you guys are like the wild cousins at the party. You know, you have like the knives and the, <laughs> uh, the big conch horns and so colorful. But also I really associate Tibetans or Tibetan practice with is this sense of embodiment. And I'm sure I'm going to get a bunch of comments from the Zen practitioners, but there feels to me anyway, that within the Tibetan work, there is a real appreciation of the body as one of the vehicles into understanding the path to awakening or the path of liberation. You actually have this line where you say, the closer we come to the body, the closer we draw ourselves to the truth of our own wildness. And I'm wondering what that means for you or what that means for the youth. You think that means for the, the reader or the, the listener. Yeah, the body. The body is a profound door into the practice of the Dharma. And, and sometimes an overlooked door. Um, so close to us, and and yet we're so um, in our culture. We are so taught from an early age that our success is going to come about because of our mind, you know, because of our the use of our intellect and our our uh, intelligence, and and that can and, and that along with a, a long history of mind-body dualism, starting with Descartes, you know, up to the present day, um, there's a tendency to, to, um, to relegate the body to a kind of an inferior status vis-a-vis -vis the mind. So uh, I'm just sort of saying that as a way of approaching background. And I'm, I'm kind of... Um, yeah, talking about that also as a from the point of view of being a practitioner who has uh, gone down the road of doing that very thing myself, um, giving my body the second class status and my mind the first class status, and um, and actually the the uh, the body I've discovered in, over time over and through practice is is really an overlooked looked resource. Um, so yeah, the body as the doorway to our own wildness, the body is expresses nature, you know, it's some, uh, we could say we're, we're fundamentally, we're animals, we are wild beings. And yet on top of that, we have this prefrontal cortex that tells us that we are civilized beings. Mm. But the truth of the matter is we're, we're so connected to the earth and to one another through the body. So lately, I've been thinking a lot about the power of the body to bring us into the present moment. The body is very present. While the body, the mind is, is running into the past and running into the future, the body is is here now. So when I, I said that about its wildness, I mean the the body is our connection to the earth. It's also our connection to each other because we are all in this category of human or mammal um, can help us have greater empathy for each other. 
you know, I feel like it goes back even farther than Descartes, you know, without wanting to, <laughs> without wanting to disparage it, you know, it's a whole religion, but it's sort of in the West, very formed by Christian thought, uh, which has uh, Christian and Jewish thought, which, you know, has it at the basis, this kind of split of uh, the body as a sinful thing and the soul as this pure thing. And, you know, I, I have this entirely unscientific theory about the explosion of yoga as this body awakening, you know, that's happening mm. um, in our culture right now. Like, why is it happening right now? Also, at the same time that you see so many people moving away from a more traditional Christian view, and also the explosion of, of Buddhism, it's almost as if the body is coming to life on its own or it's, it's like returning to a space in the public sphere. Mm. It's like we're taking a somatic turn as a culture. It feels I, I that would way. Agree. Mm -hmm. And so how does, how does Tibetan Buddhism teach about the body and, or how do you teach about the body? Maybe that's a better way of, you, you were noting that you, you felt like Tibetan Buddhism in particular is, is a, a tradition of, of embodiment. And I think there's some truth to that. And I, I do think it comes from uh, a textual, the textual tradition out of which the, the this, this um, wing of Buddhism developed. Tibetan Buddhism's primary texts, or we could say the primary texts of the Vajrayana, mm -hmm. are the Tantras. Uh, this this body of work that comes out of northern India about the ninth, tenth centuries, um, even earlier. Uh, this this body of texts that that essentially uplift the body as the foundation of liberation. And in the Tantras, enlightenment is described as a psychophysical transformation, not as a mental transformation, not even as an existential insight per se, although that's in there but as a psychophysical change that happens in the core of the body. So that vision, that vision of enlightenment, I think is affecting, has affected for hundreds of years, the Buddhism that developed from, uh, from those textual sources as essentially a tradition of change uh, 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 practicing meditation both from the bottom up and from the top down. So that the bottom up being a training of the body, there are yoga, actual hatha yoga uh, lineages within Tibetan Buddhism that um, include vigorous movement of the body as a, as a deep spiritual sadhana or a deep spiritual practice. And and also uh, from the top down training of the mind. So this idea of kind of um, entraining the nervous system 
and training the body, working the body, while you're also training and working the mind as as an entire path towards awakening, that it's not enough just to sit still and meditate. But we also need to move and bring the meditation into the movement in order to be to 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 experience the full freedom of of our humanness. You've said in other places there's this great wisdom that resides in the body, and it really does feel, at least in the tradition that I'm in. Um, the Zen tradition that, you know, here we are, we're sort of cutting away, cutting away, you know, they're very influenced by Taoism, reducing, reducing, reducing as much as we can until we get to this truth. And if the body is going to be involved in this, it's almost, it's not so much the, <laughs> the dropping away, but all, but sort of the welcoming in of this other thing that just seems to be put away as, um, something that's kind of almost holding us back. Hmm. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So this is also, you were saying that um, in Christianity, there's this tendency to uh, bifurcate between mind and body. Right. In, in Buddhism too, right. you can find, um, you can find in, in tech, a, a thread. Well, of Shantideva it's talking mm-hmm. about, you know, this corpse and this, all this mm-hmm. stuff. Right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You can find this thread of thought within Buddhism. And, and yet there's also this other thread of thought and they, and they coexist in these, uh, depending on where you look, right. In the Buddhist tradition, mm-hmm. you can find a thread of thought within Buddhism that is body negating. And you can also find threads of thought that are very body affirming. Mm-hmm. And as practitioners, I think we just look for what we need mm. at the moment. Myself as a practitioner, which is really all I can speak for, mm-hmm. um, I need the body. And and I think the uh, as as body affirming. With the recognition, you know, that the body is impermanent. So I think that's also where this thread of thought is, uh, receives some of its, um, leverage is from this realization that yes, this is not going to be around forever. But while we're alive, it certainly is around. And so while we're alive, why not use this, this powerful, vessel to awaken how do you use the body as a vehicle for awakening first the body is so present Mm. using the body to awaken can be as simple as pausing and dropping from the headspace down into the feeling body. And that is, sounds simple, but it's easier said than done. Right. To really drop into the body, we have to let go of our enmeshment with all of the thinking and all of the grasping. And just notice 
what am I feeling? How am I breathing? What am I sensing with my ears and my eyes? What am I smelling? Coming to our senses is using the body as a path to awakening. Because our senses are now, are here and now, and they are utterly awake. So in some of the texts of the Tibetan tradition, there's an expression of body as mandala. Mandala means like a sacred world, that our body is already a sacred world. And the the practice of a meditator is to explore that sacred world. Hmm. I've heard Enkyo Roshi use the term intimacy when she's talking about, you know, what happens in the practice. And it's really strikes me just listening to you about this dropping into the body, dropping into the senses, dropping into the moment as this um, really profound intimacy with what is. That's exactly it. That's a good way to put it. That being in the body is being in profound communion with what is, with the truth of now. Mm. And that alone is enough. We don't need to lay something on top of that. In some ways, what awakening is, is being graceful with what's happening. And and we and we can't really know what's happening unless we're embodied. As otherwise we are caught up in the illusion produced by the conceptual mind um, and produced by the sense of a separate self. Mm. You know, the body knows it's connected to its environment. I was, I was once talking to um, a social science researcher who said that our body is monitoring. 24-7, we are monitoring our environment for threat. Uh, we're monitoring our environment for resources. Below the conscious mind, our animal body is knows it's connected to its environment and knows it's connected to other bodies. And it lives in, in a web of interdependence. The body is already living in that web. Our mind has the illusion of separateness, mm-hmm. that it's me and the other. So coming down, dropping into the body and becoming really, you know, there's a difference between observing a feeling or a sense, a sense experience, observing a sense experience and saturating that sense experience, which 
is like the difference between being apart from and being one with. So when we're practicing with the body, we're learning to be one with the sensual, intimate. I feel like there's this sensuality to Tibetan practice that, you know, whether real or illusion, from my from my perspective on this little Zen peak, I'm like, oh God, they have such sensual practice. Well, in the Tantras, there is a goddess. Gods and goddesses for every sense. There's the eye goddess and the mouth goddess and the ear goddess. It comes out of this perspective that our senses are divine. Mm. And so it isn't such a surprise that when you walk into a Tibetan temple, there's color exploding from the walls and there's incense billowing from the shrine. And there's music playing, right? And um, the senses are stimulated. So yes, I think this idea that it's sensual is an extension of this idea of our senses are are the divine doors into wakefulness. Mm. Our body is the divine door into wakefulness. And so in a sacred temple... There are there's a, there's a, this tendency to stimulate the senses rather than right the opposite would be to um, encourage an inward turning a closing down of the senses right as I think exists in in some spiritual traditions for sure um, but in certainly in the in the Tibetan Buddhist understanding of meditation your practice is to open the senses. And to become intimate with, to merge with, to saturate the senses, and to allow that to wake you up, to bring you into the present, to help you experience the, and also to help you experience the joy of being here now. You also said love and compassion are not ideas. They are movements of the heart. They are embodied. And if we are interested in discovering love and compassion, it it's this process which is really an unfolding of our deeper being. When I saw that passage by you, I was kind of struck by how much love and compassion exist for me as this idea. And, you know, I you know, I probably am like, oh yeah, <laughs> probably fake. Like I pretended from the heart, but it, there was something about the way that you said it. It's like, no, these are actually things that live within us, and that if we truly want to understand love and compassion, we need to search out for the embodiment of them within us. That's right. That's so true. When I was early on practicing the Dharma, I can remember this one time being in long retreat. And it was my first three-year retreat. And and we were seeing all of these prayers. Uh, may all sentient beings be free. May all sentient beings um, you know, be free of suffering. May they experience happiness. Um, may all sentient beings... Um, you know, have everything they need, right? But there was some disconnect for me. This this term, all sentient beings, 
who's that? Where's that? Right. right. It's so big. <laughs> In my immediate experience, right? Who where where is the sentient being? Of course, using my imagination and my thought process, I could kind of connect. But then there was this one point in that retreat when uh, you know, we spent a lot of time in solitude practicing and also saying these prayers for all sentient beings. And this 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 cat began um showing itself on our on our property. <laughs> and I would I would just I would just catch these glimpses of this cat. And <laughs> and the cat was feral. It's a feral cat. So I would just and you know, because you're in retreat and you spend so much time in solitude, you notice all of these small things because there's just not much sensory stimulation in our dream. Absolutely. And, yeah, you know, I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, right? You, you notice the way the, 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 the water runs down the leaves. Yeah. You, you notice, I mean, you notice all these different details because your mind is seeking stimulation. So much, yeah. In the way that we do. So I noticed this cat. And, um, and then later I, I, I went into the woodshed, you know, maybe weeks later, and I started uh, to reach for the wood because we, you know, we had a, a wood stove, and it was my turn to bring in the wood. And all of a sudden, I heard this hiss, and there was the cat, and there was her face, and she was just really like ah, just wrathful. And I was like, oh my! And of course, it turned out she had had kittens, oh. and we slowly befriended the cat and the kittens, and and it was such a we became really close. I became very close to this cat. It was such a heart opening. And I started to feel, experience compassion and love just in my relationship to these this cat and her kittens um, more than perhaps I had, you know, during the retreat, I was monastic and we were, we were not, uh, particularly, we, did, we weren't speaking at all. Right. So I didn't have a lot of intimate moments with my <laughs> fellow retreatants but there was this intimacy suddenly developing with these cats and her kittens and it so opened my heart and and I thought you know this is the feeling here that we should have for all sentient beings so so I think um what I'm trying to say is that we need to use our experiences in our life now and in our life in the past, um, to, to both remember and to notice when we feel connected, when we feel loving, when we feel warm, when we feel compassionate, and to learn how to live in those moments more often, to re-enliven them with our memory, and to extend them from just you know one or two people to more people and more people but we have to start really where we are and where we're experiencing and feeling love and then extend from there not start with an abstract idea like all sentient beings although i think that's i love these terms all sentient beings i mean they of course Absolutely. these prayers are beautiful and wonderful but as a practitioner we need to find our experience of love and then connect it to those prayers. And then the prayers are juicy. Yeah. Well, this leads me kind of into another one of your themes that it sort of 
appears in your work, which is about listening. So here we're talking about the body, but of course you can't really get into the body if you're not listening to your body. And there's this line that you have where it was really about, you know, what are we kind of doing with all of this practice that we're doing? And the question that you you asked was, how do we develop a listening culture? There was a, also a, a, a sort of an encouragement for people to, to view listening as something that actually is an opportunity for transformation. You remarked that listeners in our culture are sort of viewed as passive, but if we really get into the process of listening, listening to the body, listening to what's around us, that there is this real opportunity for, for transformation. I'm just wondering if you can say a little bit about how you teach people to listen, what that's like for the people who come to, to you as students. Meditation practice itself is an act of listening. It's an act of listening because we are listening for our breath. Mm. We're listening to our thoughts. Mm-hmm. It's an act of receptivity. We're being deeply receptive when we are meditating. So through meditation, you are learning to listen if you're doing it right. Or through non-meditation. Well, and just for the point, the and, listener, the, the whole point of that person who was leading the teaching was like, just don't be attached to the idea of meditation so that you can yeah, actually. Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. The meditation project is such a burden, right? right? <laughs> we do very well to just, just not just be, you know, meditation is being. But it's all—it's also a, a state of, res- of receptivity and of, and of listening. So, so learning to listen, learning to listen better to others, to their speech and to their um, to their expression, to their to their beingness, um, helps deepen our practice of meditation and meditating, ideally helps deepen us as listeners. So listening, you know, I think we are getting back to culture and being countercultural. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in our culture, we're also taught that our success will be how we present and what we say and the content of what we can offer is our success is going to come from that. And not so much is said about that our success will have to do with receptivity and how we are. Of course, we are in it. Learning is valued in our in our culture, um, but um, but the idea that listening itself can be a profound act of kindness, of compassion, and of wisdom, it isn't something that we hear that much. Um, but but in fact, it's an important practice of the heart listening because we can't really know another person unless we learn how to be open and receive 
who they are just as they are. And, and to do that, we have to do quite a bit of, of listening to them. So listening is a profound practice. Yeah. And in the teaching of the Dharma, we do enact that in our, in our retreats in a, in a sort of um, intentional practices of listening, like dyads, where we do practices of deep listening. And you, you, your instruction might be to that you must listen without uh, trying to do anything or responding to another person for, for five minutes, for example. And then we change the other person as the listener, and then that person becomes the speaker and, and so forth. So you know, it's, it's, it's a practice. And, and some people need more listening skills than others. So, so just <laughs> self-knowledge can be helpful. Right? And some people need more speaking skills yeah, than true. others. And maybe they've done a lot of listening. So, so I think self-knowledge around that is important too. And I, I like the fact that you used the, the term countercultural. Um, I do think that the, the Dharma can be a, a vehicle for countercultural transformation and you, you had this line where you said uh, the environmental crisis is a crisis of not having listened deeply to the earth. And I, I, you know, I'm sort of speaking for you, and you can certainly correct me here. But you know, my guess is you could also add, you know, in the war crisis and the income inequality crisis and the, you know, whatever the racism crisis. It's like we just, as a culture embracing a listening process through through the study of the dharma would give us a path for liberation from these very what seem cultural issues but are coming from this absence the spiritual absence or overlooked spot i would absolutely agree with that i think we could it would be amazing if our culture adopted more formal training and how how to listen i think when we listen we could be listening in a way that's restless and distracted which is the way most of us listen actually. yeah or or we could be deeply attentive open curious and at ease and you know that's that's a state of meditation it's possible to, to listen in a state of meditation where we aren't trying to fix and we're not trying to, um, to reroute. We're not you know, doing any of that. We're just resting with what's coming in. So much more could be accomplished um, when it comes to meeting each other around our differences. If we were willing to listen to one another in in that kind of way, you know, in I, what I appreciate so much about the Zen tradition is this, is this uh, doctrine of not knowing, of openness, of, of, of um, beginner's mind. And if we could listen that way, with that kind of openness to each other across difference, we could make a lot more progress. But even that notion of listening with beginner's mind is foreign to our culture, right? Mm. So there's a lot of work to be done, <laughs> I think, um, around listening in our culture. Yeah. 
there's this quote from Job that I wanted to read to you because it reminded me of when I was listening and reading your material. It just reminded me of you because you actually, you've talked about like listening for presence, which to me includes, you know, talking to somebody else. And then, but then there's this other, this larger intimacy that is occurring when you're truly listening. But, but this is the quote from Job. It's one of, it's one of my all time favorite. I used to lead meditation hikes and I would give this out to people at the beginning (laughs) for them to carry. Uh, And it's from Job 12. And it says, um, ask the animals and they will teach you the birds of the air and they will tell you, ask the plants of the earth and they will teach you and the fish of the sea will declare to you. And it's such a curious little line because, you know, who talks to birds and plants and expects them to actually respond to us? But part of that is we just haven't actually really tried to listen. And I think if we do, there is something for them to say. And there is something for other people to say. And, you know, what, what would happen if we truly embrace that as part of this, of this practice, of this dharmic practice? Mm. That's, That's a beautiful quote. Yeah. Yeah. I think that part of the crisis that we're facing is that we are suffering from nature deficit disorder. We are disconnected from the natural world. We have for so many years viewed the natural world as a resource to be used for our own benefit. And that is such a violent and limited way of seeing the natural world. These are our sisters and brothers, these birds and insects and animals. They are absolutely us and we are them. And unless we go to the the wilderness and, and listen, we can't know our sameness. So, so important. So when I was saying that we haven't listened deeply enough, I meant so literally, we need to get out of our houses and our structures, our man-made places and into relationship with things that are growing and with soil and with, um, with animals and really commune with them so that we know they are us and we are them. And then it's intolerable what we're doing to the planet. It becomes intolerable just through the, the, the recognition of our sameness that by killing or using the earth and its resources without care, it's the same as killing ourselves. And, and until we make that connection, we're, we're, we're in danger as a, as a planet. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Lama Willa Miller encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more about her work by visiting naturaldharma.org and wonderwellrefuge.org. 
Links to both of those locations, as well as for her books, are posted in the show notes. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quantum Online Sangha. Listeners of this podcast are eligible for a free month of training, which includes live Q&A interviews with Zen teachers, discounts on webinars and online classes, and access to a private community where students can discuss their practice and receive guidance. To access your free month of training, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and use the promo code SITBREATHEBOW, all one word. And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I'm your host, Ian Whitemar, and I hope you'll join me again next week. Thank you.